I was the Kung Fu consultant on Kung Fu Panda. And what happens at the end of Kung Fu Panda is what I teach. Well, that's impossible. That's a cartoon. No, you can do that. But again, you have to have an open mind, which is you take their energy. I have a wonderful Kung Fu friend. He's one of the great Tai Chi swordsmen. And every time I see him, he goes, push me, push me here, push me here. And I'm going, I don't want to push you here because I know what will happen. But then I start pushing him here because it is awesome what happens, which is when my finger comes up to push him on the shoulder, his finger comes up. And when my finger touches him, his finger touches me. And literally, I'm pushing myself. It, my energy goes through him. He channels it. It comes out his finger into me. And it's the most awesome sensation. And I and I do it for a while. And then I start saying, stop pushing yourself, Rick. Stop pushing yourself. Stop pushing yourself, Rick. That's, again, I, I believe in supra-heroes, not super-heroes. You look at Albert Einstein. You look at Michael Jordan. We can do amazing things. I've seen in Taiwan, I met my Qigong teacher, who, again, just opened my mind. And when my mind opens, it doesn't close again. I'm going... I know this is possible now. Rick, I feel like we go back a long ways. We do. That's because we do. I was bringing you, I was bringing you Christmas presents for your entire life, or we met face to face finally. How did did we meet face to face at San Diego Comic Con, or was it somewhere else? I think we did. I think that was when we first met. Yeah, I'm trying to remember how I discovered you and saw your videos and just said, I got to get this guy on the Kung Fu Extravaganza. I'm going to want, I want to talk about that, uh, that show that you've been doing for uh, at Comic-Con for so long. Um, but what I would love to start with is just who you are, Rick, <laughs> and your your upbringing, uh, understanding what you watched as a child and any other interesting things you'd like to talk about well they're all interesting to me uh there uh, somebody's doing a documentary on me now because i already did a documentary on kung fu films and i'm going to be writing a memoir to go along with that and all this you can find on my uh on my imdb page as well as my wikipedia page so i don't have to go into huge details uh it was a difficult childhood my father remarried several times. He worked in the mental health field, and he kept bringing his, he kept marrying his work. <laughs> but my stepmother, the one who raised me mostly, was an actress. She's probably best known for her role as the old Rosie O'Donnell in A League of Their Own. So I was in a theatrical house, and I was always vying for attention. And I discovered it in theater at about the age of 12. And then took over the theater department in the junior high school and senior high school. Uh, and also during high school, I, I, I started writing. I started reading when I was five. I started writing not too long afterwards. I wrote and drew my own comic books as I was growing up. And so I was in a theatrical production in college. And I would tell, and they were building a huge set around me because the big ending of the show is I come in on a giant, a giant swan. And one of the guys who's building the giant swan says, and I would tell them stories while they were building the giant swan around me. And they, he said, well, my, my brother is starting a comic book company. 
uh, you should talk to him. Your stories are great. So sure enough, I went in to the comic book company, which was Atlas Comics, Seaboard Periodical, which is coming up to its 50th anniversary. And I met Jeff Rovin. And uh, long story short, Jeff loved the material that I brought to him because I gave him a lot of my comic book ideas and my drawings and stuff. And he made me assistant editor of the uh, comic book and magazine line. So uh, that I was off and running and Jeff would send me, would throw me a, a, fan, um, a nonfiction book project after Atlas Comics folded up the first time. I started in nonfiction books, but I had been reading every mystery and science fiction novel that had been published since 1965. So I started writing them. And I, I met all these other writers who always used writing as a whip to beat themselves with. And I used it as a feather to tickle myself with. So I was having fun. So all I wanted to do was have fun. So editors soon learned that I could deliver a book on time. It would be readable. And so they started throwing me work. And I did the Incredible Hulk novel. I did the Dirty Harry novels. I did the Ninja Master novels. I did whatever... I mean, basically, my writing career was, ooh, that looks good. Let me try that. And whenever I loved something, then I would want to write about it so I could make money off of it. And I did that with video games. I did that with television detectives. And then in 19, I'm working at Starlog magazine. I've written a science fiction film book. I've written a fantasy film book. And I was on the, through for Starlog, I was on the set of Superman, the Christopher Reeve Superman in England on Pinewood Studios at the 007 stage for three weeks. And then I saw the movie and I they put in the campy Otis character. And I went to the offices at Marvel Comics because I was friends with everybody in comics by that time. And I said to Larry Hama, who created the G.I. Joe world, why do they always make comic book movies campy? He literally said, follow me. And that very day, he brought me to see Baby Cart in the Land of Demons and then Drunken Master, which was because we had six different uh, Hong Kong cinemas in New York's Chinatown, which, where they showed them widescreen, pristine prints, subtitled. So all these jokes about old com, uh, Kung Fu films where it's scratchy film and it's all you know pan and scan. I didn't get any of that. I saw them fresh and new. I, as soon as I saw Drunken Master, I went, I went into my publisher the next day and said, I want to write a book on these movies. And they said, here's $750, go ahead. So I did. And shortly thereafter, I was in Hong Kong meeting Jackie Chan, meeting Yun Biao, meeting Samuel Hung, meeting Raymond Chow, going on to the, a lot of Shaw Brothers. The book came out in 1985. I was ahead of the curve in America. There's some great English guys like Ricky Baker and Toby Russell, Ken Russell's son, who was way ahead of the curve in England, but I was the guy in, in America. And so I just shared my love, and I've been doing it ever since, Inside Kung Fu magazine, Asian Cult Cinema magazine, 300 uh, DVDs for Celestial Pictures, working with Tai Sang. And eventually, um, I, since I had already been to the San Diego Comic-Con, because I was in comic books, I did to the San Diego Comic-Con, what I did to Jonathan Ross, who was the David Letterman of England, which was, you got to watch these Jackie Chan movies. Because I had seen Bruce Lee, but he didn't speak to me because I had a, I had a difficult childhood. 
So I wasn't interested in hitting people and, and feeling pain and giving out pain. As soon as I saw Jackie, who tried to avoid fights, I said, that's what I want. And I couldn't find that. I, I took a lot of martial arts in America. I couldn't find Kung Fu. They said they were teaching Kung Fu, but they weren't. And it wasn't until Inside Kung Fu sent me to Taiwan in 2001 that I discovered Kung Fu. And in 20 minutes, I learned more than I had learned in the last 20 years, literally 20 minutes. I learned it's open mind, open heart, open hand. That's why you see me with, in pictures with Michael Jai White and Scott Atkins and all these other guys. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's taking a picture like, mm, and I'm always keeping my hands open. So in any case, so that's long story long. And I could go on for hours and many podcasts have discovered that I can go on. <laughs> can so you talk a little bit? Can you, yeah. can you talk a little bit about more about when you went to Hong Kong? Yeah. How did you get to know people like Jackie and Samo? And how, like, what, what did you ask? And I asked this actually personally, because I'm doing this now in a sense. Yeah. So um, how, what was your technique? Well, there was no, it was, it was me. I mean, basically I recently did the uh, Kung Fu consulting on minions rise of Gru, And uh, they sent me a caricature of me as a minion saying master of dumb Fu. And that's pretty much. And also I did the Kung Fu consulting on the original Kung Fu Panda movie. And they did a drawing of me doing the Wuchi finger hold on Poe. But both the expression of me as a minion and the expression of me as the te uh, Poe's teacher is me. I'm a cartoon character. And I, I was just very lucky that when I went to Hong Kong, I was the I was Mo Guilo. Guilo means foreign devil. Mo means hairy. So as soon as I found out about what they called me behind my back, I took it as my name. So whenever I was introduced to anybody, I would they would say, What who are you? And I go, Mo Guilo. And they would laugh. And that would and also I I showed up. In other words, I've always been a cartoon character. I've never been, you know, Mr. Serious Cinema. You know, it's kind of like anything that's fun, I'm interested in. Okay, well, let's have fun. That's the way I do my Kung Fu, too. I want to be, I want to have fun. And also want to heal myself. My Kung Fu style that I've developed, because I listened to Bruce. The only two people who seem to have listened to Bruce is Jackie Chan and me. Because Bruce said, learn everything you can from everyone you can, then make it your own. And everybody else goes, yeah, everybody else, life of Brian's Bruce. You know, in life of Brian, life of Brian says, speak for yourself. And they go, yes, we will speak for ourselves. So everybody's, Bruce says, make it your own. And they go, no, yes, Bruce, we will copy you. We will make the noises you make. We will keep you frozen in, in, in ice for since you're for 50 years. But Jackie said, I'm going to do the opposite of Bruce. And I said, I'm going to, my Kung Fu style is called don't hurt me. And when I teach it, it's called don't hurt yourself. So that's why I would never make a fist. And speaking of your podcast, that bef before I keep, continue talking, the bottom line of the message I'm going to give you and everyone else is after John Wick 4, the only place to go, the only place to go now is to make it real. In other words, now we've gotten to a place where all the characters are video game characters. 
The movies have become, thank, because of John Wick 4, awesome, but it's a musical. It's not a drama. It's not, a, it's not even an action movie. It's an action musical because all the fight scenes are being done like Busby Berkeley and Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, which is awesome. And if you use the suspension of disbelief that you use when you watch a musical, because in a musical, they start singing and dancing. And the audience doesn't go, oh, that's impossible. No, they go, it's a music. And John Wick 4 is a mayhemical or a martial And it's awesome because the director, David, and the guys, Chad, they treat it the way Busby Berkeley would treat it. The camera is a martial art weapon. It combines with everything else. But we've got no place to go. That's why the Muay Thai movies and the uh, and the uh, Indonesian, the Salat, the Indonesian stuff, all of that has no place to go because they've gone as far as they possibly can. That's humanly comprehensible. I always John Wick Four. I call uh, incredible in terms of both incredible to watch, but also uncredible to accept emotionally. We know I'm I'm happy the way it turns out. No spoilers here. I'm happy the way it turned out because that's the way it should have turned out on the last one. Because the last one, I mean, I went, that's ridiculous. I can no longer accept John Wick as an actual human being. And what makes movies work for me, live action movies, cartoons are the same. The action in um, uh, Puss in Boots, the action in Agent Elvis, the action in the Japanese stuff like Shin Kamen Rider, which is coming up, are all cartoons suspension of disbelief because in cartoons you can i can suspend my disbelief they're not human characters they're cartoons but in a movie and i've grown up with the great classics i've been loving movies i've been seeing i've been going to see movies for 64 years now 65 years so i grew up with these great movies that touched my heart and touched my soul and gave me mind candy in addition to eye candy but today Again, it's all been pushed so far. I'm, they were very wise again with John Wick, and now they're going to do stuff outside the John Wick connection. But how are they going to sustain it? Because even the musicals died out, and so did, and Hong Kong cinema is in hospice, at least the Kung Fu, the action Hong Kong cinema, because number one, China doesn't want Kung Fu. They want Wu Shu because they don't need 3 billion people with their minds open. They need people who follow orders. And so in cinema now, how we, and it, you know, Marvel's having the same problem. I've often said as a critic, which is when anything is possible, nothing is interesting. And that's where I believe we're getting to now. We, you can love the Michael Bay stuff. You can, leave, you can love the physiology-free video game action and in, and in the case of john wick 4 i did love it and in the case of puss in boots i loved it in the case of agent elvis i loved it but i also know in marvel and all the rest of it you know i want to feel something again i want to laugh i want to cry i want to sh i want to cheer but if i don't believe any character on screen is human it's very tough it's very hard so my belief is what the James Bond people should do is they should go back to the beginnings of Bond and they should have a young character get his 007 and every punch hurts. Every car 
every car fight is dangerous. And also what I've been trying to do, I want to make a short, I want to talk to you about making, I was going to make these short subjects where a, my, a, a character played by me is re-educating all the screen characters to fight intelligently. Because my friends always say, oh, I want to be badass. And I'm always going, I want to be good ass and I want to be smart ass. I want to be smart. And when I teach my style, which I've done all over the world in seminars, uh, don't hurt yourself. I always say, I'm not interested in how tough you think you are. I'm interested in how smart you are. I'm not interested in how much you can take. I want to know how effective you are. So my thing would start with a young woman trying to prove that she's badass and, you know, I'm, I'm as strong as the next guy. And my character is going, you know, and I would say, how did that feel when you hit the guy you were hitting? How did that feel? And anybody who's ever been in a fight knows that it's not as easy to show it in the movies. And also guns should be treated realistically. When I saw films of people outside of the John Wick theater and all pretending to shoot each other. And that was like me when I was a kid, when I would play spy versus spy and cops and robbers with my brother and all my friends, we would just boom, 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 boom. And then when I was, when I was writing the Dirty Harry novels, I actually went out and I shot every gun that you could possibly shoot. I have friends who are Green Berets. I have friends who are Israeli paratroopers. We all know what real guns are like. And you can't find that in movies. You can't find the only real car crashes I've ever seen in movies was in, was in uh, a werewolf, uh, American Werewolf in London. Even Fender Benders was having people crippled. The only real gun the only real I can't I can't think of any movies which showed guns realistically the way they actually work. I mean, I mean it was I awesome. Think maybe, yeah, go sorry. ahead. No, I, no, I, no. Was, I would just, it's your I, would podcast. just I would just throw uh, I would throw Beat Takeshi in there. Uh, Takeshi Kitano's films. Sometimes his his depiction of guns can be very deadly. And when there's a gun in the scene, you take it very seriously. It's. Well, he's closer. John Woo was closer because of the great Chow Yun Fat. I mean, I I did I recently uh, they quoted me a lot in the uh, John Wick Gun Fu book by Ed Gross. Uh, they shouldn't have killed his dog, and I talk about that in there too. Because the one thing that Chow Yun Fat did is whenever he watch him, whenever he pulled the trigger of a gun, there was a sense of power and there was a sense of fear. Also, the original Die Hard was more realistic in terms of. And probably the most realistic gun movie I've ever seen was Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. And I and the way I another critic said this, but I've taken and repeated it, you know where every bullet is in that movie. Schwarzenegger, uh, all the other guys, they pick up a huge gun of uh, uh, Stallone, and they make it it's the easiest thing in the world to mow down hundreds, if not thousands, of people. I was going to ask you when you think that transition happened and why. Well, it's all no. Remember the very first the, the very first movie, and I mentioned this also in "They Shouldn't Have Killed His Dog," the Ed Gross book. The very first action movie ever done was the Great Train Robbery, that silent western. And if you recall, it either I can't remember it either begins or it ends with a cowboy pointing a gun directly at the audience and pulling the trigger. That taught us the lesson that we have never grown up from. 
guns don't hurt. Guns are easy. Guns are fine. And the movies, again, I've always said that the gun is about power. You know, you get a gun in your hand and suddenly you feel incredibly powerful, which I did. It wasn't until I fired the gun. I always say I love guns. Not too crazy over bullets. Bullets scare me. But guns I love. They're beautiful. They're beautiful machines. But in any case, yeah, we have never grown out of it. I mean, the, the, the movies where guns are treated seriously are exceptions. And even in those movies, the leading character, like in Unforgiven, is a killer. I mean, we live, thanks to John Wick and, and all these other movies, we live in an assassination now. Every, every fourth person is a hitman in cinema at this point. And of course, ridiculous. It's all fantasy, and that's fine. But again, how are we going to progress? Somebody has to anchor it now. Somebody what do you, what has do you, to feel. What do you think that that says about us now that the audience is receptive to that idea that everybody can be an assassin now? It's not. This is nothing new. I mean, this has been going on throughout cinema history and book history and television history. Guns, uh, guns have always denoted power. Guns are constantly being used. And also fists. That's the that's b the biggest problem for me in terms of watching these physiology-free fight scenes where everybody's, you know, young women are fighting old men and they all fight exactly the same. You could take you could take their heads off and switch them, and it won't have an effect on the fight scene. My uh, my buddy. Um, Again, uh, they. Uh, I'm blanking on the. Um, he uh, did a, he did that uh, AMC television show with the martial arts in it, and Stephen. Yeah, Fung, Danny Wu. Daniel. Oh no, Daniel Wu was the star. Stephen Fung was the choreographer behind the scenes. They both worked on House of Fury, which I both enjoyed. And when I went to see them uh, after uh, uh, the Into the Badlands came out, and I looked at Stephen because I know he can do better. And, he, and I said, what happened? And he said, the only direction they gave me is make it look cool. Don't make it look real. Don't, make, don't let it have any power. I understand that Hollywood wants this stuff to be quick. Jet Li told me, I said, what was the difference between working in America? Because I was interviewing for the second time on Romeo Must Die. I said, what's the difference between filming in America and filming in Hong Kong? He says, in Hong Kong, we film for a month. Three weeks of that month is the fight scenes. One week is the drama. In America, we film in a month. Three weeks of the drama. One week is the fight scene. So I understand that producers don't want to spend a lot of time making the fight make sense. They want it to be quick. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. But now with Chad and David and others in 8711, hopefully they will think. They will do what the horror guys like A24 and Bloomhouse are doing now when they realized they could only push the slasher films so far. So now they're making them smarter and smarter and smarter, no matter how difficult that is to recreate. I understand the slasher people. What's great about the slashers is if you keep the budget below $30 million, you'll make a profit. I understand that it's show business, but at the same time, for independent for filmmakers, especially for people such as yourself, Eric, and other, I mean, as you know, the Kung Fu extravaganza, I always like 
as a showcase for up and coming talent. Uh, what I always try to teach is do it different, do it special, do it smart. From the very first shot, let the audience know who's in control and who your filmmaker is. Your movies are Eric Jacobus movies. You're not mistaken for anybody else. And that way you'll get attention and then Hollywood will hire you to do the same old crap. Because that's, because when I was working in Hollywood back in the 80s, it was the same ratio, which I believe it is now, which is 75% were mediocre and 25% were genius. And I think that's the same thing. So you're still going to be outnumbered by 75% of, of uh, producers. You hear the stories about these terrible producers. I mean, I've been watching producers ruin movies for years. I mean, I talked to the, uh, the stunt coordinators on some of the G.I. Joe movies. And they would talk about, you should have seen the beautiful scenes we set up. And then they went into the editing room. Oh, I mean, Snake Eyes was the most recent one where you could see they have they had Kenji Tanagaki, one of the best choreographers working. And they cut away from the finish. They would start the action and then they cut away at the end of the action repeatedly to the point where it was, it was no longer an accident. They were clearly doing that. Do you and, think that do you think that there is um, any it, do you think that there's a a reason a good reason in their mind why they do that because i call it i call it meanwhile meanwhile editing where you show how a fight is beginning and then you cut away to something to kind of imply that meanwhile this action is happening you can kind of forget about it now the 75% of bad producers i agree with orson welles orson welles said back in the in the 40s hollywood is not about money it is about ego and also i was in the elevator with Jackie Chan when a, a, a high-ranking producer said, oh, America will never accept a Chinese hero. And we all said almost in unison, what about Bruce Lee? And the executive didn't blink. He just looked even more smug and said, oh, he was the exception. I have, when I was working in the 80s, I literally at cocktail parties, cocktail parties are the place when you hear this stuff, I had executive producers on television shows say, well, what did you expect? Because their show failed. Their show failed. Rob Reiner also said, you wouldn't believe how much money television makes even on a failed show. So this, guy's, this guy purposely killed his show. And when the, the genius producer who I was friends with asked him why, he said, and I quote, what did you expect? They saddled me with a Sue Grafton, who was a dear friend of mine from the Mystery Writers. She had been a screenwriter. She had a very famous private eye character in her books. And I asked her, why haven't you made a television show or a movie out of your character? She said, I don't like the way they play. And, and that's what she meant. These producers play. I've heard them say, you know, oh, blacks can't open movies, Asians can't open movies, women can't open movies. It is all about their ego and their power. They want to have power. If they can step, literally, if they can step on a creative person, they are intimidated and uh, demoralized by creative people, and they love manipulating them into ruining their work. And that's why... Think... Oh, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. 
Oh, I was going to ask, uh, how do you think that translates then into their depiction of action? Is it because they don't understand it? Is it because they're not? Oh, they I believe they understand it. They, I believe they just want to ruin it for the reasons they want to ruin it, because they want to have, have a feeling of power. They want to feed their egos, because the one thing that these producers seem to have in common is they're very, I learned in Kung Fu, all hatred is self-hatred directed outward. And these people feel very small. That's why they became producers. I mean, if you look at the power position, that's why in business, you know, uh, people are trying to become vice presidents and middle managers because then they can have power over people below them. You know, having worked in a lot of different industries, I've seen it in every one of the industries. It's not unique to film. It's just more noticeable to me because I can see, I can see, okay, that, that movie died, but also that movie was murdered. And, you know, uh, I talk about Alien 3 all the time. It's just like, Thelma Louise came out, it proved that women could open an action movie. So the bad guys had to all unite and find a way to hold them down. So they can go to their, so they could go to their meetings and go, oh, women can't open action movies. They're still doing that. Watch the last Tomb Raider. I mean, the, the first half hour is a textbook example of how to kill a character, to how to make an audience. So you can't, since they're so good at killing, they've got to know how to kill, which means they know how to do it right. But they're not going to do it right. So with this trend now where you have these sort of exchangeable heads, like what you're talking about, where you have the female protagonist and the you know, like, you know, you look at any film where a female protagonist is beating up these guys that are six foot two, 500 pounds. Um, how do you think? So are they trying to ruin those females as well? No, it's a well, at, at this point, it's bottom line, because if you make the fights smart, they'll take longer and you'll have to have trained people. And the fact is, it's not going to change. It'll change in unique situations. You and I should talk, Eric. We should change it. We should make it because the mass mass Hollywood is not going to accept this because they have to keep they have they have to keep making the sausages. And if you start being smart, it's going to take more thought on the part of everyone. Everyone from the very bottom of the rung to the top of the rung. Everybody has to be smart. That's difficult because not everybody is smart. At this point, like I said, 75% versus 25%. 25%, there are great movies that are coming out. I mean, now with the streaming services needing to be fed and everything else, there's a lot of cool stuff. I mean, The, the Lost Bullet, the French film, and uh, the French action thing. People will, and also po politicians will always want a controllable audience. They don't want, just like China, They do, China doesn't want Kung Fu. Nobody who's in power wants Kung Fu because that opens your mind. They're going to say martial arts is Kung Fu. So yeah, it's it's not going to change. It'll Well, it, it'll change slightly. But Hollywood has, and movies and television have always been what they are. They will continue to be what they are because we got to keep making sausages. That's, a, that's also a bad thing and a great thing about... Um, the population, we're in overpopulation. I'm very lucky that my beard is getting longer and whiter. So I'm coming to the end of the hallway. I'm reaching my last office. I'm coming to the end of the tunnel. So I'm able to say, I'm able to get into my, uh, you kids get off of my lawn phase 
which is I don't, I probably won't have to worry. I won't have to witness the end of humanity. The world won't end. Humanity will probably end, given that we're working so hard to kill ourselves. We're just doing a great job. And um, uh, I'm doing, I also did a very good job. Uh, but the great thing about being a writer is I know the end of every story. Every story has the same ending. So it, it's really kind of irrelevant. You know, that's another thing I love about movies and television shows. The main goal, especially for superheroes, is to save the world. Save, we've got to save the world. And it's like, mm, no, you don't. So my attitude, again, all about me. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt yourself. The thing that everyone should, I can't read your mind, Eric, but I can read my mind. So I spend all my time doing what Jesus said, treating others the way I wish to be treated, and doing what, Je what Bruce said, learn everything I can and make it my own. Because when the end comes, no matter if I'm surrounded by family in the arms of a lover, I'm going to die alone. And I, I used to want to die the way Spock died, Mr. Spock, who was a great idol of mine and one of my saviors as a child because he was logical. And he said, you know, he died nobly, the, 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 uh, the death of the whatever, the, whatever that final line was. I used to know it by heart, but now I'm old with a long period. Uh, the needs of the many are weighed, the needs of the few are the one. And that was the way I originally wanted to die. But now I want to die the way Captain Kirk died. You know how Captain Kirk died? Do you remember his last line? That was fun. That was Captain Kirk's final words. And I went, that's the way to go. Don't give it, don't give these ideas to other people. Use them for yourself. Because other people because they are serving a master who does not want new sausages. They want the same old sausages. That's again why Stephen Fung was kind of, you know, cut off at the knees because he had and Yun Wu Ping and others I've talked to in the Chinese community, when they come to America, they're not trying to tell them what to do. It took many, many movies for Jackie to finally throw his hands up and go, no, I'm going to choreograph this. Uh, but Yun Wu Ping would. Yun Wu Ping, when he worked with Quentin and all the rest of it, he didn't tell Quentin what he should do. He listened to Quentin and did what Quentin told him to do, which is why the, those fights came out the way those fights. The fights in Kill Bill, as far as I'm concerned, are martial arts. They're not Kung Fu. But in any case, so... Yeah, don't give these ideas. I'm going to try to do, I've been trying to do my short film for a while now, uh, you know, the pandemic out in the way. But yeah, if you like these ideas, Eric, run with these ideas. Don't give them to anybody else because the people don't want, the people you're going to try to sell them to will not want them. Yeah, just, that's, why I, I'm, that's why I'm never afraid of people stealing my ideas because they're not good enough to uh, be stolen. So... <laughs> And they're not uh, going to do it the way you do it. I'm they're always not... telling people at coffee shops and I'm telling, giving them my bank account info and everyone thinks like, there's no way I'm ever going to do any of this stuff. So yeah, look at the, look at the, look at the Smith brother over there trying to tell me what to do. So yeah. Oh yeah. And again, this was, this is very important. How to talk to the filmmakers in Hong Kong. Uh, William Shatner told me how to interview somebody after many years of me trying to make myself worthwhile in their eyes. I would meet these guys and I idolized them. 
So I'd say, well, you know, I wrote a book too. And, you know, it's real. And Shatner went, no, when, when you interview somebody, remember, it's about them. It's not about you. You're just, if you do a really good job, then, then we'll love you. And that I, I kissed his ring. And from then on, I was just, I knew my, I knew my role and I, I loved my role. I just, I just uh, floated happily in my role because that's how I made friends. That's how I got all this wonderful stuff with Richard Donner and Ray Bradbury because I, I wrote them the way I saw them, not the way I, I wasn't trying to buoy myself. I was trying to buoy them. So, but the thing about Hong Kong and the reason that I excelled is that I came there knowing the difference between what they did and what the Japanese did. I mean, in other words, I would never use the word chop sake. I would never use the word oriental. I always, whenever, you know, I've worked in every medium except video games and I want to work in video games now. I want to do a Kung Fu game, a real Kung Fu game, but I've worked in every entertainment medium. And the reason I probably got in is that I walked a mile in the uh, first two things. Number one, I wanted to please them. I never said, what can you do for me? I always said, what can I do for you? And when they told me what I could do for them, I wanted to be prepared to do that in a way that was helpful. So that means I have to know what they did. So when I, when I started writing, I stopped listening to teachers. I stopped listening to other writers. I only listened to editors and publishers, people who could pay me and who could help me. And I would learn from them. Now, when people ask my opinion, and very few people do now because they know my nickname, The Anvil, I start by saying, do you want approval or do you want my opinion? And if they say, no, I really, I honestly want your opinion, and I start to give them my opinion, and they start defending their own work, then I know they're not interested in my opinion. They're interested in approval. Because I learned very quickly, if I was going to get better, if I, if somebody was going to start buying my books, if somebody was going to start buying, you know, getting giving me consulting jobs, they would do it because I didn't defend my work. When I said, I loved it. My first editor for my first novel, which was in the Destroyer series, was Warren Murphy. I handed in my first novel. He said, the difference between you and me, kid, is I know the names of the problems. And I went, tell me the names of the problems. And he did, and I shut up and I listened while kissing his ring. While he was telling me the names of the problems, I knew that was going to, he was giving me a PhD education in how to get published, how to make a career out of writing. And I listened, and ever since then, I'm always looking for someone who knows and is willing to tell me. And if they're ever willing to tell me, and all, Can you, actually more likely I'm writing it down because now my brain is of my age. So it's like, what was I doing? So, yeah. So when you get there, if you know, unfortunately, most of the guys are really, I got to interview a lot of them, but I never got to interview La Calion. And that was the one guy I wanted to interview more than anybody else because he knew more about Kung Fu than any uh, everybody else on the planet put together. 
And I never got to just listen to him. And at this point, and also you're in an industry now, Hong Kong is China. So it's not as important to know how to do Kung Fu films. In America, you have a, a slightly better chance, but the problem here is that American filmmakers, show business still wants to get into China. They still want China because I think they're the second or third largest, maybe even the first, they're in the top three. India, America, and China are the top three box offices. So of course, American filmmakers, producers, both 25% and 75% producers still want to get to China, want to have that shot to get that yen. So they're not going to upset the masters. They're not going to upset, ups, upset mama and papa China. So they're not going, they don't, China has made it extremely clear. They do not want Kung Fu. So, yeah. So at this point, Eric, just go and use common sense. You do what I would recommend now. The last time I was in Hong Kong was 2017. I didn't enjoy it. I had a lot of, I ate three times a day for a week. And my review of every single meal was you can taste the chef's tears. I also love doing my impersonation of a Hong Kong resident over the age of 20. This is my impersonation of a Hong Kong resident over the age of 20. They're looking to see who's listening because someone is. And here's my impersonation of a Hong Kong resident under the age of 20. Nobody bother me. I'm just going to keep walking straight. Nobody bother me. Because they now live in China. And, yeah, and also, yeah. worse than China, their mama doesn't like them. Hong Kongers are the redheaded stepchildren of China now. They always have been, haven't they? I mean, the, the Southern society has always been pretty, Yeah, I mean, because of how far it is from the capital. Yeah, and check the history books. Who, what was the one force that that burned down the Shaolin Temple more than any other force? The Chinese government. The Qing, yeah. Yeah, they've always, you know, always take down Kung Fu. Kung Fu is threatening to people who want control over other people. Human body, human mind, the world around it. By the way, every single Kung Fu and martial art is the same thing. The human body, the human mind, the world around it. The rest is money and ego. Can you um can you talk about what the sentiment was like in the 80s in Hong Kong about China? Were they were they anticipating it? What what was the what was the sentiment? Oh my god, yes. I worked I worked with Ocean Shores Video, which was one of the top distributors of the independent cinema. The I you know, a lot of people uh spit on me. A lot of the haters hate me for this opinion, but the Shaw brothers were not Run Run Shaw was not interested in the American market in any way, shape, or form, or spreading out his films. His actions, I always say, actions speak louder than words. And, you know, he may have uh, made a, but he closed down his film units in, what was it, uh, 93, maybe? Something like, it was around that era. And put all those guys out of work uh, because he wanted to have the control and power and he didn't want them once I I spoke to Run Run Shaw once, actually twice. First time was when uh, World Northall 
I was going to Hong Kong through the help of World North Hall in the early 80s, and they were coming to the end of their Black Belt theater syndicated package of Shaw Brothers Pan and Stand movies, which they put on independent channels under Black Belt theater or drive-in movie or whatever. And they were running out of movies. They got 105 Shaw Brothers Kung Fu films and were running out of them. And they wanted more of them so they could do a Black Belt Theater 6 package. And they said, could you check? And I said, sure. So I'm in the offices of Ocean Shores. Uh, the great Jackson Hung, the head of Ocean Shores, gave me the number for Shaw Brothers Studio. I'm there in the office putting together documentaries. This is Kung Fu and Ninja Mania for Ocean Shores. And I, I call up the number that Jackson gave me and Run Run Shaw answers the phone. I thought it would be a secretary. He gave he didn't give me Shaw Brothers number. He gave me Run Run Shaw's number. And I'm like, blah, 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 blah. and I and I, I just quickly said, oh, what a pleasure to meet you. Listen, uh, I'm I'm representing and it gave him the whole Ocean Shores spiel. We'd love to put uh, I'd love to talk about doing a uh, a package. And he went, no, thank you. And then I went, oh, well, I have my book, Martial Art Movies from Bruce Lee to the Ninjas, and I'd love to give you a copy. No, thank you. Oh, well, okay. Oh, all right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, all my best. I love your work. Thank you. Goodbye. And then I spoke to him a little bit more at the premiere of The Accidental Spy. I was at the Hong Kong premiere of The Accidental Spy. And there was Run Run Shaw. And I was like, awesome, man. And I didn't remind him of the phone call. I looked completely different at the time. Well, he didn't see the way I looked back in uh, the mid 80s. So yeah, he did not want what I found out from the filmmakers themselves who I met, Lolia, uh, Wang Lung Wai and others, is that he couldn't make the money. He once these movies became successful in America because of Black Belt Theater. Everybody, including La Calion, wanted more money. And Run Run Shaw saw the writing on the wall. He said, I can't, I can't control them anymore. I can't, I mean, they become stars in America now. And they always, Hong Kong, I mean, when I was at Jackie Chan's 32nd birthday in Hong Kong, uh, uh, the the villain, I forget his American name, the uh, the villain in uh, uh, the Yun Biao of Cynthia Rothrock movie. Um, uh, Melvin Wong? Yeah, Melvin Wong came and I, and I was going, hey, because I was giving out copies of my book. And he, I, I offered him the copy of the book and he looked at me and said, you like these movies? Yeah, I love these movies. So the Hong Kong always had the attitude that they had about their Kung Fu films is that these were lower than Roy Rogers Westerns. I have a similar story where I was, I had a friend, close friend at the end of my high school years. And I was um, collecting video CDs of these old Kung Fu movies. And I was showing them to her. She was from Hong Kong and she looked at them. She's like, these are B movies. Hey, Z movies, as far as they were concerned. But to us, you know, we were seeing in a different, in a different light. I mean, and, and now of course you look at the cheapest of the cheap Kung Fu movie made in the you know after the ascension of Jackie Chan, because again Bruce Lee was still all about fists. That's what uh, La Kali Young said in a wonderful interview by Mike Leader uh, about how Bruce was still into fists 
getting pain and giving out pain. It wasn't until Jackie when it was about not getting pain and avoiding the punch. And that's the other thing that drives me crazy about modern action movies is the, the heroes always trying to prove how great they are by taking the punch. You don't have to take the punch. If they're doing this to you, you know, I always say that's one of the first lessons I do in my teaching. It's like, if I'm doing this to you, don't be there. And another Kung Fu teacher taught me that, you know, he, he had specialized. He was really great at letting people punch him in the face, but he would always move just enough so it didn't have the effect. So it looked like they were constantly punching him in the face and he was just smiling at them. He would move. So again, we could revolutionize screen fighting. But, but in my in, my, in the movie I hope to do, the short film I hope to do, I'm doing it in a humorous way, in a knowing way, in a semi-meta way, although never breaking the fourth wall, but never breaking the kung fu film wall. I still want it to be taken seriously and have everybody watching and going, oh, I, can, I know what you're doing. Oh, that's, oh, that's cute. And it's in four, it's in four parts. First, how to fight, which is don't be there. And also, if you're punching someone, don't do this. The weakest part of the human body going against one of the strongest parts of the human body. Yeah, that's really smart. It's only, it only works in movies because nobody feels pain. And nobody gets cracked knuckles. And nobody gets a split lip. And nobody has a piece of their glasses going to their eye. And nobody, nobody shoots a gun and then has the hot shell come out of the automatic and burn the person next to him. Nobody does any of that. And also, no, the, these, these, you know, guns that can shoot 400 rounds a second, they're not heavy. They're not hard to control. They're just light as a feather. And also, you know, talking to my uh, Green Beret friends, they have a scar in their brain for everyone they're responsible for killing. There's a reason that's, that they're working so hard now to try to lower the suicide rate of special forces and SEALs. And that's reality. Yeah, you cannot, you cannot, given that we're all connected by energy, given that all our cells have a piece of, of cell of every single person who has ever been born and ever will be born, we're all from the same pool. You cannot hurt or kill someone with no effect. And I'm not saying the movie has to be that or the TV show has to be that. However, I'm saying the road forward is just take a little teaspoon or maybe even a, an eyedropper of that every once in a while just to, because you're trying to help the audience too. And again, I want everybody to die the way Captain Kirk died, which is, that was fun. And also know that there's more. I mean, when I see a movie like Soul from Pixar, and again, it's all about humans. We are so wildly over, overwhelmed and outnumbered by other living things, not just animals, but cells and germs and all this other stuff. I mean, again, Last of Us is beautifully made, but let me have an episode about the fungus, about their living, you know, even a cartoon where we make the fungus into little Fred Flintstone characters. I mean, 
stole could have been so spectacularly, amazingly beautiful. I mean, Coco was close, but again, that was still about humans. If you do, uh, if Pixar, do a movie about, call it life and include it all. Because you have 300 million colors, let's go. And in action movies, again, you and me, Eric, nobody else, everybody else, you, you and I are not feeding the beast. We are feeding, hopefully, ourselves. And we want to have stuff that tastes good. So let's do it. But we don't. you don't have to worry about spraying it amongst television shows unless you own that show. Get to the point where you're controlling the show. Yeah, you want to... Uh, that's what I also teach everybody in Kung Fu. You want to be Robert Rodriguez. You want to be Quentin Tarantino. You want to be, you want to be uh, J Jordan Peele. People who make their own films, that have their name on the film, they're not part of the machine, then they can do whatever they want. And they do. And sometimes, in the case of Quentin, many more hits than misses. Uh, so, Robert, uh, work so on Rick, it, Robert. When, yeah. uh, when you see shows like Last of Us, which <clears throat> everybody was talking about, it just came, from, came back from GDC, everybody's talking about this show. Not everybody's talking about it. Not everybody's talking about it. A lot of people are talking about it, but not everybody, okay? I have a small community, so go ahead. Thank you. Okay, yeah, that's another thing that drives me crazy. Uh, 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 Vincent Lynn just gave me OPO. That's what I call it, one person's opinion. Social media is not the world. Everybody is not talking about it. Enough people in the media are talking about it. The media has to feed its own beast. So they're going to say everybody's talking about it. Enough people are talking about it. That's another great thing, again, about living in this if you want to make a blue movie you'll have an audience if you want to make a red movie you'll have an audience if you want a liberal movie you'll have an audience so don't worry about it just make whatever you want you'll have an audience and that's the same thing about everybody a lot of people we know because we're on so me that's what i call social media so me um and so me makes everything has to be the the, the controversy of the second Everybody hates everything. Everybody loves everything. So again, when you know, when when everybody loves something, their opinion is meaningless. When everybody hates something, their opinion is meaningless to me. Just make good work. Just do good work. Good work that pleases you. Good work. You know, you want to be able to say, "I like that. That worked out. That's what I wanted to make," and let the world do what they want. But anyway, back to Last of Us. Go back to the question. Well. So, I mean, that that actually is a better transition into my next question, which is when you have what seems like a predominant kind of media and whether whether Last of Us 2 is the predominant media style or not, we can debate that. But but when it comes to that, uh, do you have any examples, any inspiring examples, particularly of the you know Hong Kong filmmakers or whoever it might be who said no to the machine, particularly with China, for example? Well, first of all, no, I don't. There are no inspiring stories about that because as far as I'm concerned, that's stupid. That's like punching somebody with your fist. I mean, Johnny to Johnny Toe just did that. He was at whatever, the Berlin Film Festival or something. And he, he, uh, he slapped the China Film Bureau beside the head. And I went, oh my God, how stupid could you be? You know, if you want to commit creative suicide, that's yours. But you had four movies in production. You just doomed those crews 
that cast, everybody involved, you never say no. You do what they do. Again, you're not trying to be badass. You're trying to be smartass. And that is when they say, could you do this? Yeah, I will. Okay, I will give you one happy, semi-happy uh, thing about Hong Kong guys. My favorite guy who took a, who who kept his soul when China took over. Oh yeah, going back to your other question. Yes, everybody in Hong Kong knew what was coming. Jackson Hung would talk at Ocean Shores, would talk about this for hours. When we would go out to lunch, he would bring me out to lunch, he would take me out to dinner, he would bring me to meet people and stuff. And all they could talk about what was, is what was coming. They didn't know what was coming. And everybody adapted the way they needed to adapt. But in any case, the guy who survived with his soul intact, Chow Yun-Fat survived with his soul intact. He said, I'm not doing any more movies. That's fine. I've had my fun. However, Wong Jing, Wong Jing, love that guy. Because China did what America would do. American producers, China did to him what American producers would do to American filmmakers, which is they would see this wonderful movie with this beautiful plot, and they'd go, hmm, can we put a shark in it? And the filmmaker would go, what? Put a shark in it? You're trying to copy Jaws? And they would fight. Unless, of course, they were Michael Bay. And see, Michael Bay is kind of like the Wong Jing of America, which is nothing too excessive for Michael Bay. Can we put a shark in it? Yeah, I can put a dozen sharks in it. Because he doesn't really care how it turns out. He just likes having his power. And Wong Jing did the same thing when they said, could we put a shark in it? He said, I'll put in a dozen. Where do you want him? Let's go. And But now he even has slowed down. You know, I feel awful for Wong Jing, who was going to be the next Kung Fu star, until they said, you know, he made the most successful movie in Hong Kong cinema, uh, Wolf Warrior 2. He announced Wolf Warrior 3, and Mama China went, nope, not happening, dude. We don't want you to upset our children. That's basically my my take on the attitude. We we don't need three billion children excited. We don't need we don't need everybody running around happy. So in any case, we need them to follow orders. So yeah, I mean that's the way you do it. But the way you you do it with your soul intact is you never say no, which is what they never do. The producers, the seventy five percent bad producers, never say no either. They always go interesting, interesting. I mean, I worked for uh, Playboy Funnies, which was the the cartoons in the back of Playboy magazine. And they told me that they taught whenever they had any of their models at a party, they always taught them whenever a man was talking to them to do this with their finger, put it underneath their lower lip to make the lip more even more pouty and when, and never talk, only listen and do this. And I said, that's a great idea. Lessons from Playboy. Thank you. Yeah. If I'm ever in a position where a Hong Kong filmmaker or whatever producer will say, you know, I won't, I won't fight them. If they're giving me power, if they're make, letting me do something for them, I'm happy to do it. I, but I'm not expecting my, to have my way until I'm doing my short film 
with my crew or your crew or whatever, then we can do whatever we want. But then, like I said, if Hollywood gets excited about that, they'll ask you to do shit because that's what most of them want. But Quentin Tarantino, Jordan Peele, Robert Rodriguez, and others of that ilk, they have their own little playgrounds. They do what they want. Mm. That's how you, and you do too. So you do what you want. Next question. Yeah, the uh, there's a there's a lot of talk, obviously, on uh, in yeah, our industry knows. about. Uh, yeah, I say there's a lot of talk because I again I I interact with a lot of these you know producers and stunt performers, stunt coordinators, and uh, they want to appeal to China and make sure that they get a Chinese name so that they can get that you know 1.2 billion people, uh, 1.5 billion people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what's your take on the current state of marketing and casting and how i mean is this affected by this incentive of course it is however what i tell people what i what i say to these producers because there was a period of time where there was a push for me to to be a consultant because i'm a creative consultant on television and movies and have done the kung fu stuff so a lot of these guys not a lot but some of these guys came to me and said could you teach us how to get into china because i was known for that And I had bad news for them, which is because back in the day when I was working as a creative consultant in uh, on television, 1985, Colombo Murder, She Wrote the Twilight Zone. um, I was asked and the reason I left that I I could have pursued a career as a story editor, which I would have loved. But I realized it wasn't it was going to be a dead end because I was asked the difference between writing a book and writing a screenplay. And I said, well, they're both creative works by me, so I consider them both my children. And so when I'm finished with the book child, I will bring the book child into my editor at the publisher and we'll discuss it. And the book editor will want the the hero to have green eyes and I have blue eyes and we maybe compromise. And then we go out to lunch and the editor pays for the lunch. That's the book business. Movie and television business. I bring my child in. I've seen this happen. It's happened to me in a small way, but I only let it happen to me in a small way once. But I've heard, seen it happen to lots of people afterwards, which is I bring my child in. The producer looks at my child. He tears my child's head off, throws it away, grabs my child's ankles, turns my child upside down, dumps my child's guts on the floor, then says to me, there. Isn't that better? And my job, if I want, my job was not writing, not creating my child. My job was bringing my child in. But my real job, if I were going to be successful at my job, my real job is to answer that question. Yes. Yes, it is. So realistically and so believably that the producer accepts it. And I could not do that. <laughs> I am the anvil. You know, it's kind of like I sort of went, okay, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ignore it. And but a lot of people have to because they want the power, they want the control, they want the money. So what I was, and the reason I didn't last as a creative consultant of getting into China long is basically I told them that story. I said, that's what you're going to have to do. You have to kowtow to your Chinese masters 
so believably, so convincingly that they'll accept it. And by the way, going in, they hate you. They hate you long before you got there. Yeah, there's there's nothing they like better than putting Wilo in its in his or her place. Nothing they like better. I had friends who got in quotes very very close. I said, I know what's going to happen. They're going to they're going to tag you along. They're going to tag you. They're going to drag you along. Drag you along. Tag you along. Tag you along. Tag you along. Until it's time, they're going to write up the contract. This has happened to me and people I know three times. They're going to write up the contract. They're going to have you sign it. Then they're not going to sign it. Hmm. That's that's the routine. And, you know, and it's one, you know, again, fool me once. That's that's the what I live by. You know, no, 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 no. I know what's going to happen. So the, the important thing for me is to not to find that. I mean, all, all the stuff over here is stuff I've done in the last 50 years. It's books, it's DVDs, it's magazines, it's, it's television shows, it's movies. This is what I've done. Not all of them have my name on it, but all of them have been done by me. And I was in complete and utter control. There's something in the corner of the screen that I wrote in a couple of weeks for a publisher that I got great reviews from and a lot of money for, but it's mine. It's mine. And nobody, and nobody can, nobody has dumped out its guts. In fact, they've, they've cheered its guts because you know why? Because I know I'm going to die. So the most important thing to me is to have a great life. And Robin Williams can teach you all you need to know about success in Hollywood. He had it all. It didn't make him happy. Apparently, Lauren, Lauren Michaels says that to everybody he casts on Saturday Night Live now, which is, if you're not happy now, this is not going to make you happy. You do it for yourself. How do you fight racism? How do you fight anti-minority, uh, uh, anti-Asian hatred, anti-Indian hatred, anti-African uh, hatred, anti-female hatred? You destroy it in yourself. And you spread it because you can't guarantee anybody else. All you can do is control you. All the only mind you can read is your own. So get your own act. You know, another thing I teach in my Kung Fu is like, love yourself at least as much as that which you say you love the most. Because I know a lot of people who treat other people great and treat themselves like crap. That's that makes me feel sad. I want. The way I live a happy life is if everybody's happy. And I've done the research, and that's the only true way you can make yourself happy. It starts with you. Again, all self-hatred, all hatred is self-hatred directed outward. All love is self-love directed out. Do you think uh, do you think that this has ever changed? Do you think that? the Robin Williams, the court jesters of the world, do you think that it's always been the same issue? No, because it's never, it's, every individual is their own universe. You're not, I would say this, I would say this to Jerry Seinfeld and he would go, what are you talking about? I'm incredibly happy. Yeah, he, see, but he meditates. He's inward driven. I mean, when you want something other than yourself, when something other than yourself can 
Musashi always said, it's all in you. Whatever you want, it's all in you. You just have to tap into it. If something else completes you, then you'll never be complete. If something, if, you know, uh, Robin Williams was quoted as saying, when I got the Oscar, I was happy for like 20 minutes. And then I went back into depression. It all stems from you. Also, I grew up, my father was worked in mental illness and mental uh, mental ha handicaps. So I was surrounded by uh, people who had uh, in intellectual disabilities. They called it something different back then, but you can't use now. Can't use that term. Starts with an R, ends with a D. But, and that's fine, because I didn't agree with that phrase either. But I was surrounded by them, by them, and they were human beings too. They were more like Forrest Gump's than they were like, you know, uh, <laughs> more like uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter. But, uh, and for the most part, they were incredibly nice. And so I treat everybody the same way, no matter what their weight, no matter what the size, whatever. I'm Santa Claus. I'm Kung Fu. I'm Kung Fu. I'm Kung Fu Santa. Basically, I say, be nice. And what's great about being nice is you find out who else is nice. And you also find out who else is not nice. And then if they're not nice, I go, and you notice where my, you seem upset. Can I buy you a beer? Hmm. Uh, you see where my hands are. It's kind of like one's a little forward, one's a little back, one's a little up, one's a little down. Do whatever you want. You know, I, and also I love it frames the beard because the beard, don't go for the beard, man. You do not want to go for the beard with me. You just don't want to. Yeah, because people don't realize that when you pull on a guy's beard, they go for a headbutt. That's the first thing that's going to well, happen. Well, that's the first. That's for you, maybe. But the point is, I I know what they're going to do. They're going to go for the beard, so the hands are ready. Yeah, they're not going to reach the beard, and they're going to come back with these two things broken. <laughs> Can you? Uh, so we talked about. I mean, there is a dark. There's a dark side of comedy, which is the sort of the dark side of everything of course yeah but i mean in particular because i'm in comedy so this is interesting to oh. me that you have you have comedians who sort of fulfill this sacrificial role i guess you could say and a lot of celebrities are like this as well but yeah. comedians seem to fall into it quite often what do you think the future of comedy in film is and what do you what is it what's it going to take and by the way, another side question is, are you seeing things out there that pessimists are not seeing? Maybe the state of comedy is fantastic. It is fantastic. It's fantastic. Everything is fantastic. P P pessimists look at pessimistic things. Optimi you know, look back to when that phrase half full, half empty was coined. Look, I, I always tell, uh, you know, when I was teaching my uh, class at the University of Bridgeport, I said, go find 50 years any time in history of any country ever, just find 50 years, any period of history, any country ever. Read over that, specialize in that 50 years. There is nothing you will find that you won't recognize because humans are humans. Humans will always be humans. Now, of course, if we become robots and AI, you know, whatever, fine. But so far, from the history of humanity, from our longest history till now, we don't change. However, individuals can change. I can guarantee you that I've changed, but I can also guarantee you that I will die. So on that, on that basis, 
I know certain things about this won't change. I'm in this shell. I live here. I'm inside here. I'm in my maintenance phase now, taking care of my house. So I will die. But I can tell you that my life started very, very, very difficult because I had mentally ill, I had a mentally ill mother and a mentally ill stepmother. And then I decided to make the best of it. I just started to go for happiness. And I, I studied happiness and what would make me happy. And cigarettes didn't, and drugs didn't, and sex didn't. They were all, they were all interesting. Sex was very nice. But it wasn't the be all end all. And the women and, you know, having a partner is awesome because of double happiness in the Chinese language. But it's not the be all. It still starts and ends with you. You are your own universe. And if you're looking to the rest of the universe to do for you what you won't do for you, you're going to be pretty unhappy. Because it is all the same. Comedy, it all depends on who you gravitate to. If you gravitate to the 75%, you're not going to have a wonderful time. If you gravitate to the 25%, you're going to have an excellent time. And at this point, with a population of how many billion we have on the planet, take 25% of, I think it's around 8 billion, 9 billion now. How many people is that? You can go through your life and also learn to do Kung Fu, which is avoidance. Avoid the conflict. Take the conflict and return it to them without using any of your own energy. You're going to have a wonderful life because that's billions. That's billions of people. That's millions of people. That's billions of people. 25%, 9 billion, 25% of, I can do the math. That would be, if you point 2.25 billion, those are the eight is two. Yeah. Everywhere yeah. I've gone, I've met wonderful people. I've met not so great people, but I, I hang with the wonderful people. I hang with the wonderful people. I go, I, and also now that I've gotten so much into kung fu and all the energy and the stuff, usually I, this is this happened rarely when I was a kid. I would turn and look at somebody, and both of us would go. We would just know, because of the energy. But now it's like, it's much more readily. And also, I'm hanging around a lot of kung fu people, and so you know, whenever I'm with the martial art guys who want to make the fist, it's always like, okay, that's okay. I like the I like the guys with the open minds. When I would uh, I would go to American Film Market and um, you know we were trying to sell comedies at the time and sales agents a lot of the time would say, well, you know that's not the thing right now. Uh, people are want people are wanting gritty material right now and that and in my head I was thinking that means people really want comedy right now. Well, not well people do, but people also want gritty. People want comedy and people want gritty. But of course, you're dealing with somebody who wants to have power over you because you're a creative person. So they're going to say what they need to bring you down. I wanted to get a little bit more technical real quick. Um, All right. But well, let me let me finish that thought about. Yes. Those Again, the trick here is serve two masters, serve yourself and serve them. If you can get something through to them. And I and also the greatest success I've had is when I don't care if I don't if I'm trying to please them, the less they'll let me try to please them. But if I go fine and go on to and find the 25%, because even in, in the film market, you'll be able to find them, but you have to keep looking and you have to can't be, you can't be desperate. But the, the less I wanted to mess with them, the more they wanted me. But then again, I didn't care. I'm not trying to please them. I'm trying to only please myself because my budget is such that I'm, I listen, all of life is super simple. You got to have water. You got to have food. You got to have shelter. That's it. The rest is your decision. 
And that's why I've loved doing all the different jobs I've done. I haven't done just entertainment. I was creative. I was, <laughs> I was the king of medieval times. I was, I was the uh, quality control manager at Toyota for a year and a half. I, I mean, I do all sorts of different things and I love them all because it's me doing them. I'm meeting more people. My meat is, I'm, my memoir right now is tentatively titled Living, uh, Learning to Live or Living to Learn or Learning, one of those two. And it's all about whenever I learn something new, it makes me happy. That's my drug. And so again, if you go in with your hat out, you're going to meet a lot of people who, who hate hats. They're going to take the hat and they're going to tear it up. Yeah, but if you come in and sort of go, this is interesting. What can I learn here? What's this all about? What? Let me find my way. The way. Let me find. Let me find the Jacobus Road. Let me not walk the you know Phase Four Entertainment Road. Let me see what I can do. And again, the greatest success that I think you can create, and you were already on that road, uh, which is you keep on making really good films that people react to. And you learn from the people, but of course you got to make a living. And uh, that's another thing I teach: always, always do what you have to do to finance your dreams. But thankfully, my dreams included everything I ever did. So I never kind of like you know I've got to I've got to get out of uh, Toyota now in order to do the real work. And I'm going no, it's all the real work. It's all a part of me. And also, <laughs> I was told the other day by a guy saying, aren't, aren't you still trying to prove yourself? And I'm going, after 75 books, what do I have to do to prove myself? He said, well, you have to prove yourself to yourself. And I'm going, I've proven myself to myself. The first book, I proved I could do it. And then the second book, oh, I can do it again. Third book, you know, and also each one of everything I've done, I see as a step and I put it on its side and I keep going up on my stairway to heaven. And so... The goal is to be happy. And if what you do is not making you happy, don't worry about it. Find some, figure out what I spent years explore. I love the pandemic. I love the pandemic. It forced me to spend three years exploring my internal world, exploring my internal universe. I met everybody in there. Maybe not. Actually, that's so the internal universe is so gigantic and maybe as big as the external universe. And it's like every day was, oh, this is so great. It's so wonderful. So anyway, go on, ask me the next question. Um no, I actually experienced something similar too. Uh ended up talking to a lot more people and getting off of social media. So it was a very, it was a very good time. <clears throat> it was Don't a great time. People. Yeah, it was a great time to get off social media. Yeah. Well, I have uh, a lot of I've I've whittled my social media down, so it's only people I like. Okay. I wanted to just jump on some quick things that I wanted to cover because you have knowledge about this. The um your understanding of is this is kind of like bite-sized, bite-sized, bite-sized things here. Hong Kong style versus Japanese style, action style, movement style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, for me, it's very, I mean, I've always, uh, the country gets the martial art at once, which is why, which is why Muay Thai is, you know, very self-damaging. Uh, 
I always use Heroes of the East or Shaolin versus Ninja as, you know, that's to me is the ultimate uh, Japanese versus Chinese movie. Uh, because the Kung Fu, which I find is predominantly Chinese, well, it is Chinese. I'll, I, won't, I won't try to be uh, politically correct here. My the China the kung fu I learned from my Taiwanese teachers uh, is fluid. It's changeable. It's all. It's not one style. It's all style. It's the human body, the human mind, the world around it. That's it. Learn everything you can from everyone, and as Jackie Chan taught me, everything you can. Not just everyone. Everything you can. It's everything, and so. You're incredibly versatile. I mean, every single part of the body. In Kung Fu, you don't use one fist when you can use your head. You can use your chin. You can use your knee. You can use your shoulder. You can, And also, since it's internal, it's soft, powering, hard, it's like whatever you want to do. I had, a, you know, one of my, uh, the World Heavyweight Tai Chi champion had an encyclopedic knowledge of the martial applications of Tai Chi. I, how do I know a... a a Tai Chi teacher is not a good Tai Chi teacher when they go, there are no martial, martial applications to Tai Chi. No, you're thinking of Qigong. Tai Chi, there are hundreds of martial applications. I mean, every single thing you can do. So once you have all that knowledge, you don't have to do this. And also, once you, you're fluid, you know, be water, my friend. Another thing I believe that Bruce Lee said. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. I always generally, I compare wild generalization, Japanese, just like samurai sword. Compare the Chinese sword to the samurai sword. It's straight. It's hard. It's soft and hard, but it's used in a straight way. It's powerful. While the Chinese, flowing all over the awesome place. So again, also the Kung Fu, I like, again, I like to see smart fighters who react to what they're given. First thing I was taught, the highest form of Kung Fu is not to fight. If you're starting a fight, something's wrong with you. If they're starting a fight, something's wrong with them. And as a Kung Fu student, you can use that against them. Because that's the other thing. As a Kung Fu student, if someone is trying to hurt themselves by trying to hurt you, you'll help. That's the highest form of Kung Fu I know. Never start the fight. Always, you seem upset. Can I buy you a beer? But if you don't want the beer and you want to hurt me, really? Me you want to hurt? Okay. Then, if you insist, I'll help you. And again, I was the Kung Fu consultant on Kung Fu Panda. And what happens at the end of Kung Fu Panda is what I teach. Well, that's impossible. That's a cartoon. No, you can do that. But again, you have to have an open mind which is you take their energy. I have a wonderful Kung Fu friend. He's one of the great Tai Chi swordsmen. And every time I see him, he goes, push me, push me here, push me here. And I'm going, I don't want to push you here because I know what will happen. But then I start pushing him here because it is awesome what happens, which is when my finger comes up to push him on the shoulder, his finger comes up. And when my finger touches him, his finger touches me. And literally, I'm pushing myself. My energy goes through him, he channels it, it comes out his finger into me. 
and it's the most awesome sensation. And I and I do it for a while, and then I start saying, "Stop pushing yourself, Rick. Stop pushing yourself. Stop pushing yourself, Rick." That's again, I I believe in supra heroes, not superheroes. You look at Albert Einstein. You look at Michael Jordan. We can do amazing things. I've seen in Taiwan. I met my Qigong teacher, who again just opened my mind. And when my mind opens, it doesn't close again. I'm going. I know this is possible now. I mean, I have, and I've seen other people do it, and I've done it. I have thrown a 250-pound, five, 25-year-old football player across the room without feeling it. I didn't feel it. Everybody in the room tried to knock me over. I didn't feel them. Energy is incredibly powerful, but your mind has to be open to it. I know this is possible. So that's in the Chinese Kung Fu form. Not anymore because it's being damped down. That's why I had to find it in Taiwan. And I'm telling people, if you want to learn Kung Fu, go to Taiwan. Do not go to the Shaolin Temple. Do not go to the Wudong Mountain. They're great. They're very entertaining, but they're wushu. They're not going to teach you that style of Kung Fu. If you want great Chinese food, go to Taiwan. Because again, you don't taste the, the chef's tears in Taiwan. And hurry before China attacks it before China takes it over. That's where you find out all this stuff. So again, the difference is the Chinese the Chinese style at its optimum is fluid, is water, is being water, what Bruce said. While the Japanese is follow directions, I learned a discipline. Kung Fu is literally and figuratively an art. While the rest of it, especially the way it's being taught now, and I've taken a lot of classes and I've watched a lot of classes and I've been to a lot of tournaments, it's taught as a, again, like I said, ego and money. The reason why my style has to be best, that's ego. The reason that my style is the best is that you come to my school, not his school, and you pay me every single week for the rest of your life because I want to make a living. I mean, I love William C.C. Chen. He's one of the greatest guys, awesome Tai Chi guy, but you see what he teaches, and he's teaching for Americans or for people who have money who are willing to pay the money and come back every single week. I, you know, the guys I met in Taiwan, in Taipei, was like, we love this stuff. We love sharing this stuff. We don't want it to die out. And it is, it is dying out they're the last they're the last it's so and the other thing that when i when I, we were working i was i was hoping they would use me for kung fu panda 2 which they did not sadly and kung fu panda 2 has no kung fu in it it's just martial arts they should have called it martial art marsupial i wanted the plot of that to be what i've seen happen to so many of the teachers the kung fu teachers i admire the most which is when I was teaching in the martial arts studies degree program at the University of Bridgeport, I lectured them because they were also almost all Taekwondo guys. And I said, Kung Fu is so powerful. You need to know only 5% at the most to teach it for the rest of your life. And so that's usually what happens. And it becomes so powerful. And people who are insecure are, are so overwhelmed by it that they start sabotaging themselves. They start destroying themselves. And I've seen that happen 
with a variety of really top line Kung Fu people. They have to, that's why I never charge for the Kung Fu I teach because I don't want it to be about money. I don't want to give you what you want. I mean, I do that for Santa Claus now too. I still have done Santa Claus. I've played Santa Claus for the last, since 2005. And now over the last few years, I just don't charge for it. And then at the end they said, but we've got to give you something. I said, give you what I think I deserve. And funny, the, last, the ever since I've done that, I've made more than I did <laughs> in the years that, I, that, I, that they paid me upfront. So in any case, so I hope that answers your question. Thank you for that. Is there any any final advice? I've done all my final advice. Okay. Which is strive for happiness. Um, I have a bunch of uh, I have a bunch of truisms. Read your own mind. Don't you know? Well, no. My truism is: if you speak for yourself, you'll never be wrong. If you speak for anybody else, you can never be sure you're right. And the other, this one's a, a lame one, but I still like it. When you don't always learn when you win, but you always win when you learn. Fantastic. Be happy. Be nice. Thank you, Rick. Be nice. Be happy. You've been a great mentor to me, and I thank you so much for all the support over the years. I really thank appreciate you. it. All I look forward to seeing forever. you again. Yep. Action Talks is available on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. Join my Telegram at t.me slash Eric Jacobus. You can check out my studio at superalloyinteractive.com. My website and blog is at ericjacobus.com. And be sure to subscribe. Thank you.